Human cultures carry taboos against certain forms of behavior. Not all taboos are universal, but the strongest cultural taboo that carries through most, if not all societies, is cannibalism. Our literature and arts treat cannibalism as lurid and abhorrent, and yet we return to the subject in attempts to understand what would lead people to eat other people. Anthropologists study cannibalism in order to understand the antecedents, such as population pressure, or shortage of food, or even as an act of desperation and survival. Are there cultural reasons for colonialists to accuse those savages whose homelands they are taking to accuse them of cannibalism? Biologists study cannibalism as well to understand if there is an evolutionary advantage in some situations to use cannibalism. What species use cannibalism to enhance their selfish genes? What are sand shark fetuses doing when they eat their half-siblings in the womb? Bill Shute a biologist has published a new book on the matter, Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History, exploring the topic from several angles in all sorts of species. You are invited to purchase a copy through Iconocast.com to help support your favorite podcast. Greg Layden, an anthropologist and a host of this show, explored cannibalism as a potential avenue of study as he was developing his career in science. Greg and Bill provide an enlightening discussion on cannibalism here on Iconocast. I am Mike Harbrick. And welcome our listeners to another episode of Iconocast. Bill, it's great to talk to you. I uh, really enjoyed your book. I'm going to start off actually by telling you a bit about cannibalism because I have a lot of personal experiences. Excellent. When I first, anthropologist, and when I started getting interested in human evolution, I had been studying prehistoric archaeology in New York and New England for some time and actually thinking about doing cannibalism as my research area, looking at it from a biological perspective. Because it, it seems to me looking at humans, you know, if, if you're a group of hunters and you're competing for hunting, let's say, deer with your neighbor, they're hunting the same deer you are, there's a certain logic to hunting your hunting competitors first, eating them, and then you also get the deer. Uh, obviously, that's not what most groups of people do, but there's a certain logic in, in that kind of aggressive, you know, eating your neighbor kind of cannibalism. If that group is your enemy, it makes even more sense because then you're getting rid of your enemy, the kind of way to frame the question Remember at that time when I was thinking about this stuff, thinking, sort of thinking about my own moments on Long Island in relation to cannibalism, I had, a, I had a similar experience to you. I had been in graduate school looking at human evolution when Paolo Vila showed up. She's an archaeologist who was working in France, and she had been excavating caves in southern France where there were human remains that had been sliced and diced with stone tools. Sure. Some of them were in ritualized context. And some of them were just in with the animal remains. There were yeah, two that's different... the key right there, the second part of that statement, because if they're just throwing them in context of a pile of, of deer bones, then, then it's difficult to say that you're looking at cannibalism, I guess. Right. So she had come to Harvard. She's a, she went to school with Glenn Isaac, so, and I was there as his student. So she'd come and given us talk about it and so on. Uh, around that time, the Southwest evidence started to come. And mm-hmm. then I found something very interesting that is a little-known fact about human evolution, although it should be widely known because it's in, in published literature, uh, you know the Neanderthal, first well-known Neanderthal find, it's not the first one, but the one everyone thinks is the first one, which is a skull cap from the Neander Valley found with a femur and all that. Okay. That's, that skull cap was processed with stone tools. It was a bowl. 
And it was the guy that was to become my future ex-father-in-law, my daughter Julia's grandfather. Okay, uh, Neil Tappan had, had studied it, and he had very well documented. This thing was definitely used for a long time as a ball. The wear patterns on it were very distinctive and very clear. It they, know mean it, they know if it was the Neanderthals who who'd made the bowl, or, or was it people that came after well, that? It wasn't the guy whose skull it was. No. <laughs> no one knows. Uh, no, no I one think knows that. Applications to it were definitely in it. Who knows? So I ended up then moving on to doing other things, and I ended up studying hunter-gatherer groups. I worked in the Congo for a long time, and, you know, of course, cannibalism plays a big role there for reasons you talk about in your book, the story of, you know, who's really a cannibal and historical using excuses to, you know, subjugate people and so on. And somewhere in there, I went to Long Island to give a talk at Stony Brook, and that's where I ran into Bill Ahrens. Sure. But he, you know, he sat me down, he had me in his office, and he was trying to talk me into the fact that cannibalism never really happened anywhere. And meanwhile, I'm like, you know, immersed in all this evidence that cannibalism is an interesting topic and can't be just ruled out as something that has never really happened in humans or anywhere else. So, See, I didn't I, get that. I met Ahrens, and I didn't get that from him. I, I really... I mean, if you look between the lines, do you really think that this guy does not believe that organized cannibalism of any form has ever taken place? I just didn't think so. I think he's using that book to drum up interest and also to get anthropologists to perhaps tighten up their game a bit and not be as sloppy as he perceived them to be. What's that book? His book, The Man-Eating Myth. I was talking to him when his book was still fresh. It was just out. So 20 years of time may have made a difference between him being a real zealot about cannibalism not really existing and, you know, what you said, which I think is probably better characterization of what he thinks. Yeah, he literally admitted to me that he believed that um, medicinal cannibalism took place in places like South America and elsewhere. And, you know, I almost fell off my chair because I wasn't prepared to hear him say that. But then, I, you know, I realized what he had done was, was in some sense a service to, um, to anthropology. I agree. I think it probably was. Okay, so we are getting ahead of ourselves a bit, but this is, you know, that, I just wanted to let you know that sort of my, my framework coming into this is thinking about cannibalism. Oh, it's a touchy, it's a touchy subject. I'm going to just give you one example of why, of how it's a, how it's a touchy subject, and then I want to tell, and then I want you to tell me about cannibalism. This is an interesting example. When I worked in the Uturi Forest, I, I lived there for a few years with the FA Pygmies and the Lesse people. They, the people in that region of, of former Belgian Congo, Really honestly, many people honestly believe that, that cannibalism was real and that it was basically Europeans that were the cannibals. <laughs> they, they told me that the Belgians, the difference between Belgians and Americans, remember this is where the Belgians had carried out a Holocaust that puts the Nazi Holocaust at a lower level. I mean, millions of Congolese were killed in this, in sure. this area. And they, they felt the Belgians were complete jerks because they carried out their cannibalism there in the Congo, where at least Americans kept it out of the Congo. We only practiced it back at home. Okay. <laughs> Right. That's how they saw outsiders. They're very distrustful of outsiders. There is a, a canned product called Blue Band, which is a margarine in a can, and it has a picture of a smiling, happy baby on the front cover, on the front of it, as a label. It was said that the old people believed that it contained human fat. I will tell you, as someone who lived there for years and talked to a lot of people, it is true that the old people who had been under the Belgian rule believed all along that this was something that contained human fat, and they wouldn't go near it. All the young people said, yeah, those old people are crazy. This is obviously not human fat. We're not sure what it is. <laughs> Something you guys eat, and it's not human fat. So uh, there, there is this interesting ambiguity between you know, how far will you go when you're thinking about what other people are capable of doing. I came across this in Snopes one day. Snopes had an article saying, 
people in the Congo think that uh, if you have a picture of a person on the outside of the container, that inside is people. And they specifically mentioned the blue band story. I'd never heard that. That's really cool. You, yeah, you have to check it out. It might still be there. So I wrote them and I said, you know, it's nice. To, and they, of course, say this is completely ridiculous. No one would ever think this is it's a falsehood. So I wrote them saying, you know, you're actually missing the nuance here. You're actually giving you're actually kind of ignoring the Holocaust, <laughs> a different Holocaust than most people ignore, but a different one. And in a sense, people are we're so traumatized by the Belgians that they actually came to believe this to be true. And that's the reality. You can't just say is a falsehood because you have never heard it before. Your argument from, from incredulity is unimpressive. And they refused to accept that or change anything that they were saying about it because they just they had a belief and they stuck with it. I haven't sure. ever quite trusted Snopes since then. But you actually have to do kind of what Snopes did, what Bill Ahrens did. You have to tell people cannibalism is not really there because it's so easy for people to slip into those people in Bongo Bongo are yep. cannibals and so on. So now yeah, you I mean, tell it's us been about used as the sword for for uh, you know to bludgeon cultures since the time of Columbus and probably before that. Yeah, I mean there was a a case where some rebel uh, soldiers in one area of the Congo had been uh had been uh, someone someone uh snitched on them up in the Ruanzori. They told the 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 uh, army where they were, and they escaped. But the soldiers came back. The rebels came back. And captured the guy that they felt had had snitched on them, and according to witnesses, including a member of the Greek press who wrote this up in a Greek uh, magazine, um, but I met him while he was on his way out of the Congo. Uh, they they killed the man and ate him publicly and forced everyone in the village to partake. Well, there you go. Terrorism as a cannibalism right. as a terror tool. That, that's certainly something that is uh, you know that's been documented as well. You look at the, and at it the made, Japanese it made, during World War Two. Sure. And, and the thing is, it, it might not, it, it, this kind of story, it might not have even actually happened. Just, in other words, they might have not actually killed and eaten the guy. But the story was very powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I want to know, though, you know, in my original thinking about this, if you're a hunter, you, you would benefit from killing your neighbor because you can eat them and then they're no longer competing with you. But there's all kinds of reasons why you don't. And there's all kinds of calculus one can think of economically and biologically and socially uh, to control or direct or potentiate or attenuate the likelihood of cannibalism arising in a human culture. But what about these tadpoles <laughs> and all the other examples you document in your amazing book called Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History, of cannibalism in a wide range of species and with certain patterns, you know, about how uh, it arises and, and how it, when it shows up, when it doesn't show up. Just tell us, like, what is sure. what is your archetypical case that you would start with to to get people to understand that there's a really interesting biological science behind the question of cannibalism? Well, the one that you brought up about the spadefoot toad larva, I think, is really interesting, and 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 that's really an example of uh, of cannibalism as a hedge against unpredictable environmental conditions. You have these spadefoot toads that live in places like Arizona and New Mexico, and when we when I heard when I went in there, I heard, all right, well, we're going to visit these ponds where the eggs are laid, and I was expecting a pond, and and what they are are you know ruts made by tire tracks, and uh, and and um, you know they could dry up in a day. So if you lay your eggs in there and it gets really hot, of course, if that pond dries out before you get a toadlet and crawl away, everybody dies. So what has evolved is a, is a mechanism, to, uh, you know, that, that, that sort of 
um, works against that. And, and that's the fact that, that a majority, well, a good number or a good percentage of these, of these tadpoles, which they all start out as omnivores, they're nibbling on poop and algae and whatever, uh, just almost explode overnight in size. They get two or three times larger than, than their, you know, their hatchling mates. Uh, they, they, uh, get huge teeth, big jaw muscles, their digestive tracts shorten up. And they start to consume the, the little omnivores and that causes them to develop quicker. So they get out of the pool faster. Uh, and it's a, you know, as I said, it's sort of a hedge against, um, environmental conditions that, that are, you know, really unpredictable. You don't know whether this is going to dry out or not. Then there were all of these instances of, of, um, cannibalism related to parental care. Um, and that could be trophic eggs that are laid. I call them little kids meals and spiders and snails will produce these eggs that are never going to, they're never going to hatch. They'll never develop, but they're used to feed the babies. Um, in other instances, the, probably the most spectacular example that, that I ran across were these legless amphibians called Sicilians. That's with a C, of course. I always got to plug that because uh, of my Italian relatives would probably come after me if I did. Um, don't but, don't mess with Sicilian. <laughs> no, no. So these these are different Sicilians, um, and and they're and it's kind of cool because there are two major groups of these, and 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 some of them lay eggs, and and others have bear live young, and and there had been reports that when these eggs hatch, the, the baby Sicilians, which are ten, fifteen, twenty, and in number, squirm around their mothers. And someone a couple of years, I guess, after this got interested in it enough to, to, to take a look at it up close. And, and what they saw was that these, the babies were grabbing onto their mother's skin and peeling it and eating it like you'd peel a grape. And, and this is to me an extreme version of, of parental care. So they took a look at the females. And rather than having uh, epidermis that's dead skin like ours, this was fat laden and, and thick and full of nutrients. And, and this is the primary food for these babies for several weeks. And it grows back and they eat it again. And of course she loses weight. This is really stressful on the female, as you'd imagine. Uh, but the babies grow large enough where they can sort of, you know, go off on their own. At the same time, you've got groups of these Sicilians that, that give birth to, to live young. And somebody noticed that they were born with a tooth and, and that the tooth fell out really quickly. They were like, oh, well, it's equipped. It can go eat. And then they said, oh, no, my, they dropped this tooth. Where did it go? And so they, what they, they did some dissections on the, on females that were, you know, had given birth. And they found that the lining of the oviduct in the regions where the, where the young were developing had been eaten away. And, yeah. you know, that just blew me away. And, and the fact that this probably evolved from the, the, that egg, those egg laying, laying groups, you know, in a sense that the babies were pre-adapted for this type of behavior. Uh, and when the eggs weren't laid, they, they just sort of maintained this, this type of behavior internally. That blew me away. And, and there were all sorts of, uh, examples like that having to do with uh, reproduction or, um, you know, as a lifeboat strategy, you think about birds that lay eggs asynchronously 
and birds like egrets or, or, or owls. And, and there's usually a big guy and there's, or, or two big guys and a little guy. And, and sometimes the little guy just gets kicked out of the nest and sometimes he makes it. But, but if there's not enough food, they'll murder the, the, the little guy and eat him. So there's where you get your, you know, the term, the lifeboat strategy that, that wound up being applied to humans at a certain point. So the, that blew me away that it that there was that many different examples of cannibalism throughout the animal kingdom. I think one yeah, thing you, that uh, people are kind of familiar with is the sand sharks that are um, yeah. cannibalists inside the uterus, where they're uh, apparently they're um, laid there they're from different fathers, and then so it's their father's genes that are trying to trying to push their survival um, through their through their babies. Yeah, and you have you also have once again you have eggs that that are there at, at different stages of development. So you get the big guy starting to eat the eggs on, on in either side. You know, the right and left oviduct that they that that exists in these in these animals. Uh, and once they go through the eggs, they just start chomping down on their on the the other fetuses. And by time they're born, there's two of them, and they're they're now ready to go. I mean, these they they've already been uh, predators. So uh, that, that that's another oddball um, uh, example of uh, of cannibalism, and 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 those are, are local sharks. So I found that really interesting. Your your example of the of the baby fish that eat the mother's skin makes oh, me realize amphibians, not they're amphibians, yeah, amphibians. That that remind that causes me to wonder if. You, you state in your book that some small number, I can't remember the number, of mammals have been shown to have cannibalism on a regular basis. But really, all mammals are cannibals by definition, well, because they're say? they're eating their they're eating their tissues produced by their mothers. Yeah. Okay. I mean, if you so, look, I mean, there, there are certainly gray areas there, but but I but I consider cannibalism. You're eating pieces. You're eating parts. You're eating um, a, a dead body. It's not. Um, uh, I don't. I don't really consider feeding on milk or or swallowing saliva when you're you know making out with somebody, uh, you know, to be cannibalism. Well, the saliva I say is definitely a gray area, but producing tissue at at a significant cost, which is what lactation is. Well, mm-hmm. okay, it's, I I could definitely see not calling it cannibalism, but it still falls into a it, there's a there's a a parallel there strategy of in the sense of how resources are distributed in a way. Sure. Uh, also, I I had, didn't see in your book a mention of the bowfin. And that's, uh, that's you go ahead. Bo- but I, I mean, I, I didn't I didn't go out. I didn't really set out to write an encyclopedia. Yeah, I doubt you covered uh, everything. I wonder if you know about it. it there, it's a fish. Yeah, that I, I, is Amia. Yeah, yeah. Um, as I, have they, as they, they're cannibalistic, I believe. Their mothers, I think. What I, as I understand it, we have them in our, you know, in our cabin. And the, 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 the female lays. A ver- a ver- oh, they're great. They're they're fun to catch. Um, but but the uh, the female lays a whole lot of, well, babies. I don't know if they're live born or what. And there's a whole lot of them, and, and they stay with her. So there's this, you see, it's quite amazing. This mass of tiny fish in a in a really tight school, and in the middle of this mass of tiny fish is this big giant fish. And they could move together. But as they hang around, the mother just eats the offspring until she's eventually eaten all of them. Presumably, she doesn't eat every single one. Some of them swim off and become the next generation. But yeah, that is that a case? If she ate all of them. Right. Is, is that a case of, uh, uh, that has been studied? Uh, that I hadn't heard of. You know, you know, I've been, I concentrated on mouth brooders like cichlids and, you know, you, you always see these, 
these uh, these shots where oh look the, the the those the cute little babies are going into their 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 mother's mouth or their father's mouth and and uh, and what you don't realize is that she eats a portion of them and 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 if things get get tough she'll eat all of them and just write off the whole bunch if once it gets down to a certain level and then you know go at it again and uh, that's when I I didn't know that I you know kind of sounds similar. Yeah, yeah. I had way got both things. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think they're they're also uh, they're a fish that everyone likes loves to hate. Everyone everyone will tell you they're horrible fish and they taste bad, but everyone's got a granddad or an uncle or somebody who knows how to cook them. Well, they're so spectacular looking. I always thought that they were really neat, and they've got great. You know, I'm teaching comparative vertebrate anatomy now, and we're, yes. we're just about to pull out the bowfin skulls. Uh, they're, they're they're just gorgeous looking fish when you well. Either way, if you're looking at their skeletons, they're great. And if, if you're seeing them live, they're probably even more spectacular. Yeah, and they have a very interesting relationship uh, to the taxonomy of fishes and lung fishes and teleos mm-hmm. fishes and so on. They're very important, turns out. So um, the, I, I remember when I was teaching behavioral biology regularly, uh, one of the examples that we would use of uh, parental investment would be the classic example well, any of the examples where, uh, you know, the uh, suicidal nuptial copulation, huh. where, uh, you know, for an insect, uh, people don't realize that, you know, if we were lizards or insects, we'd have a whole different relationship to our energy requirements. Like we wouldn't have as, have, have as many, you know, power plants because when we were, you know, or, or as much food um, because we could estivate or we could slow down our metabolism and so on. So to an insect eating another insect that's reasonably large can give you, or to an arachnid or something, can give you a lot of energy. It might make enough of a difference to actually produce more offspring. So eating oh, a sure. nuptial gift, you know, the nuptial gift that actually is the father, exactly. is the ultimate, it's a perfect cannibalistic nuptial sacrifice. Yeah, and I, I go into an example of that with the uh, the Australian redback spider, which is the close cousin of the black widow, and the and the you know the the move that he does during copulation is 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 really kind of neat. You know he literally pre- presents his abdomen to the female, and she just you know chews him up. Right. Uh, right. But but he's done the job, and in a sense he's he's given it, he's sending her off with a good meal besides carrying his genes away with him, with her. Yeah, and the praying mantis is of course a very famous example that was. Uh, is used in a lot of classes that you Grant made famous in that movie where he gets married and his wife is pregnant. He dreams about being a praying mantis. He's yeah. so averse to marriage that he dreams about being a male praying, praying mantis. <laughs> yeah, the thing about that though is, uh, and I didn't know this because of course you always hear about, about praying mantises, is that a lot of that they're thinking now had to do with captive conditions and that, that, yeah. that it's not necessary, you know, there may be something there because he's really, um, takes, a lot of, uh, of, you know, he's really cautious as he makes the approach before he jumps on the female. Um, but that, uh, but a lot of the, the, a lot of the, the early records came from captive conditions where they, where the, the female was starved. Uh, right. and supposedly in cases where, where she's well fed, you, you don't get, um, you, you don't get that cannibalism happening the way it does in, in everybody's textbook. But uh, that's true. And it's also only one or two species, but, um, at the same time, though, we might expect that uh, one of the things you document in your book, and by the way, I should just say that you, know, you are a biologist, and what's interesting about, what I liked about this book 
is a lot of good science books are written by science writers who aren't the actual scientists, but it's usually better when a book is written by somebody who actually knows the relevant science a lot more. And it's, it's just a richer work for that reason. It's just a better documented and it's more reliable and so on. But no, as you, as you point out, cannibalism in many species is something you just won't even see time and time again. And then under certain conditions, it emerges sure. because of those conditions. And you might expect Absolutely. that the fact that we can get the praying mantis to do it in the, in the that might mm-hmm. be something that will never happen in a while. But on the other hand, it might be the thing that happens that makes that one behavior highly adaptive. The one year all the praying mantises are starving off and the, the female that eats the male manages to do that is the one that reproduces. Yep. So it's, yeah, it's a mean, kind of, I'm, you know, well, very, we don't, interesting stuff. Uh, there's, there's a principle in biology that the grants, uh, Boag, someone named Boag, I think it was, and the grants who do the, and Richard Rangham and I have written about this in relation to chimp and human evolution, uh, that the, uh, the strategy that gives you the hardcore changes in morphology that you can really see, as opposed to behavioral changes in some cases, but often very strong evolutionary changes are, are adaptations to fallback foods mm-hmm. as opposed to the easier to get foods. And in, in many cases, it does seem like cannibalism for some species is the fallback strategy, not the primary strategy. Yeah. And I think that's, I, I never heard it. I've, I've never heard it expressed like that, but, but it sort of makes sense now when I, when I think about human cannibalism in extreme circumstances. So you're talking about someone who's stranded or a famine or, uh, or, or, or besieged. And, and I think, I, I honestly think that that is a fallback mechanism that, you know, they've analyzed that they've studied starvation and the steps and the, and the physiological and, and behavioral, um, uh, steps that, that take place, the, the, the worse that starvation gets. And I think at the end of the line, you've got, you've got cannibalism. Uh, and, and, and some individuals are going to eat the dead and others are going to starve themselves to death and just not do it. And, you know, you could see that happening in, uh, in, in some of the classic examples like the Donner Party. But, yeah. I, but I really do think that, you know, we can, we can explain what happened now. We're, we're, you know, back 20, 30, 40 years ago, it was just this horrific event. And now we've got a much better explanation for why it, why it happened, why all the bachelors died, why the, why the, why mm-hmm. the women, most of them survived. Uh, you know, to me, that's what's intriguing about these old stories. I went into this thinking, oh, the Donner Party, what else is new about that? Probably nothing. And, and right. what I found out was that that's just not the case. There, there are researchers that are, that are coming up with really neat stuff about this. And, um, you know, that's, that was a surprise. What is the uh, real roots of the taboo against uh, human cannibalism, considering that it does really serve as a fallback where your choice sure. is either dying of starvation or um, eating your dead neighbor? Well, I think certainly my opinion um, is that that taboo originated with uh, folks like Homer and his description of Odysseus and, and, the, and, and the Cyclops Polyphemus. And, uh, and from there spread to the Romans and then, and, and then just really snowballed. And you've got it in Shakespeare and, and the Brothers Grimm, uh, where cannibalism became a, a threat. <laughs> to naughty kids and um and Sigmund Freud and and some of the early anthropologists and and so you just got this um this as i said a, a a snowball effect where at the end of it you've got you've got your number one taboo 
laid out beautifully throughout history by some of the great writers and most influential writers of all time. And then if you look at, at cultures, as you've done, where they did, they did not, they were not exposed to those Western taboos, they've got a whole nother way of thinking about it and, and ritual cannibalism, whether it's funerary rites or, 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 uh, you know, a part of warfare. Um, it, it's very, very different. And, you know, some of these groups, as you know, were, were just as mortified when they met up with Westerners to hear that we buried our dead as these Westerners were to hear that, that they consumed their dead after they, you know, for, instead of burying them. Yeah, it's, it, I would, I would, I, I think that's it. I, I like that theory. I like that hypothesis. I would also argue, though, one thing I would add to that, I would add to this, mm-hmm. to this right. is the, is the idea that, um, all of the other cultures that are, that weren't influenced by that sort of wave of thinking, you know, the, uh, as, as you talk about in your book, um, uh, anthropologists show up somewhere and they see what's going on. And, uh, probably over the previous decade or two, there's been traders, missionaries, and others interacting with those folks. So it's very mm-hmm. hard to know what the primordial case situation is for any particular group of people. So take, take that sort of widespread set of cultures, like how many cultures are we talking about? The nine or 10,000 distinctly, linguistically distinct groups of people of a wide range of different, of different, uh, economies and, and, uh, ecologies and cultures and so on. We're probably extremely diverse as well. So it would be very possible to find extremely anti-cannibal taboos, even more extreme. Somewhere. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. I, and and you, we also have, I think, built into us this, you know, there, there are a couple of things going on here that would select against cannibalism and, and, and um, diseases like spongiform encephalopathies would be number one in my book. And number two is, you know, um, when you're talking about uh, about metrics like, um, 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 in, excuse me, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the word now. Um, what you call fitness? Um, uh, inclusive fitness. Incl- that's it. I'm sorry, it's late. I've been interviewing since uh, eight o'clock this morning. Okay. Um, yeah, inclusive fitness, where where you're 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 actually lowering the number of genes in the population if you eat your kin. So I think those are two things that really do select against cannibalism, and 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 I'm certain that there were cultures where there where there were taboos against it, but they didn't get that Western taboo that right. that, that became so prominent because of the way we spread out and stuck flags down. Yeah. It, it, the uh, it, going back to the original thing I was saying at the very beginning about my original thinking about this, like why not eat your your competitor, your competing neighbor people. Uh, you know, as I eventually my own thinking got more sophisticated, I started studying middle what we call middle range societies. People like the Yanomama or the Wari, who mm-hmm. uh, you know have uh, they have agriculture, uh, they you know horticulture. They have um, uh, villages with between thirty and one hundred and twenty people in them. A lot of what they do is very much based upon kinship and so on, and uh, they are often at war. Uh, they're often at war in a sense with their neighbors, some of their neighbors, and some of their neighbors they have allyships with. But what's important about that is why not just kill your enemies that you're at war with? And the reason is because you weren't at war with those guys five years ago, so your right. sister is married to one of them. So yeah. you're, your niece and nephew's over there, and in five years from now, you're going to be allies again. And, mm-hmm. and some other guy is going to be here. So long term, even you don't really go to, you don't really like go and kill and eat your enemies because they're going to be your allies. And if you, if you get to be the group that does that, then there's a cost to that. But nonetheless, we find archaeological evidence 
of pretty massive, potentially, if you interpret it, if you allow yourself to interpret it this way, pretty massive amounts of eating your neighbors here and there. And uh, what is it that happens with modern humans when they are actually actively eating large numbers of other modern humans? What is the, you know, the biological and economic and cultural condition that sets that up to happen? Because we, assuming we're not going to get really, we're, we're, the evidence is pretty good. We don't have to go out on a limb to say that that happened too far. And uh, what, why did that happen? Yeah, I, I think. It, I think you could easily, I could easily see that happening in places where there is an agricultural collapse. Uh, and it's probably, it's, I would imagine it's not going to be in countries that are, um, that are really well off because there are alternatives. You could just move. Um, so, so I do think that that's the, 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 if you, if you look at, if you look in nature and you look at, at two of the reasons why cannibalism takes place, overcrowding and a lack of alternative nutrition. And if you apply that to, uh, to groups of people right now, um, where you, you know, and, and, and I, and I'm, I'm loath to sort of drag out the term climate change because you get, you get slapped around, but, but desertification is taking place all over, all over the world right now. And, and, and if you have agricultural societies and then you, and then Nothing can grow there over, you know, a short period of time and all of a sudden you can't grow your food. Then I can see this type of thing happening. I I can see desperate situations. It it took place many times in places like China, Russia, uh, because of famines. And I don't think that it's a stretch that it would happen again. I really don't think that, you know, you're not looking at science fiction, um, you know, and it would be horrible. Okay, I agree with all that. But what about Adipurka, the proto-Neanderthals? Okay. Sure. Who were, uh, now, I, uh, just my, my immediate thought on that, uh, I, I really can't. Uh, to me, it's enigmatic, and, and uh, you know, there are ideas out there. But um, one possibility is that the nature of society and culture in that group of people was pretty much extremely advanced like it is with modern humans. And we only think of them as probably not having had advanced culture because we're kind mm-hmm. of chauvinistic about our species. <laughs> but, they did, but they didn't have agriculture, probably. Okay. What is your current I don't know what to tell you there. When I, when I think about the Neanderthals and cannibalism, I, I think in terms of the fact that we're not talking about huge populations here. So I, I, I just don't see it as... You know, you went out to hunt somebody to eat them. I, I think they probably ate their. They may have eaten their dead. They, if they, if there was warfare, they they dragged the corpses home with them. Uh, but but I just don't see it as uh, let's go out and hunt somebody uh, because just because of what it would do to to populations that that aren't that big to begin with. Yeah. I don't know, do you see what I mean? Yeah, and also uh, I don't personally I don't personally understand the taphonomy at that site mm. well enough to know if. Yeah. Uh, what I really, I, I had done a lot of work on taphonomy on sites of that age and older. And I, it's a very tricky thing to say sure. how long was this going on and, you know, how many people would have to be eaten a day, year, buzz. I mean, it, you know, how rare is this in relation to other events? So some work I have done with Alison Brooks at GW suggests that if you have a cave, you can have, or, or anything really solid geological like a cave, you can have a concentration of as much as something like a thousand to one or ten thousand to one of overrepresentation of a behavior 
mm-hmm. because if everything else happens randomly in the environment and one in a thousand things you do has to happen in a cave, sure. And you and you do this for ten thousand years, the cave is yeah. going to have a lot of evidence of this one thing that sure. never happens, that hardly ever yeah. happened. So you know I, that makes Attaperka it hard to interpret for that reason, but it's still yeah, spectacular. It's oh still sure. Spectacular. Yeah, and this is what to me is interesting is that we're 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 learning more and more about these phenomena um, every year, and and to me that's that's great. You you go into this thinking with a mindset that you're not going to find that much that, and, and then all of a sudden this just exploded as far as how common it was in the animal kingdom and and how many ways and reasons why humans cannibalized each other. I mean, I was very surprised. I studied bats for a living and uh and and so it was a it was a great shock to me. That's something else I like about your book is that I I got the book, your editor your publisher sent it to me and I said, "Oh, book on cannibalism. I'm very interested in cannibalism. This will be interesting." But I also thought I'm not going to see anything new in here. I'm kind of an expert on this, you know. And then I read your book, and it was really full of stuff I didn't know. <laughs> just right. loaded with stuff in biology I didn't know, and even some of the human stuff. And uh, you know, it was a, a really informative read. I'm oh, now thanks. taking pieces out from my wife, who teaches biology, and saying, "You got to use this in class. You got to use this in class." <laughs> some, some of my friends that live in the city are telling me that you know they're on the subway reading the book, and and people are looking at them really weird because they're cracking up all of a sudden, and they're, they're holding a book called Cannibalism. Um, but I think that's the nature of the the type of book that I'm interested in writing. I did the same thing with, uh, with blood, with blood feeding and with dark banquet. And I've just been uh, really, really lucky to fall into this, into this niche where there's this sensationalist garbage on one side. And then there's a lot of academic material on the other. And, and there's a big space in the middle um, where I could sort of go in and, and, and lose the jargon and, and try to entertain and, uh, be serious at the same time uh, and, and throw some humor in there. Yeah, it's well done. Another thing, uh, another area you touch on, uh, I'm blanking on the name of the book, but I'll, I'll put a, a, a reference to my blog post on it a while ago. Uh, there's an academic book on cannibalism a while back that came out, and uh, uh, and it has a lot to do with Western society, cannibalism in Western society. So, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, um, we uh, Christians eat the body of Christ, which is a, sure. You mean flesh, do you mean flesh and blood by Ray Tannehill? That was a, a very very good book. No, it wasn't that. It wasn't that. Um, Here be cannibals, I think. No, something like I'll 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 find it later. But um, it was a, it was a, an obscure academic book actually. It wasn't a trade trade book at all. But mm-hmm. uh, he points out. He starts out with a story. You know, uh, you you go in behind the Roman Colosseum and there's a a man. Uh, you know, apparently uh, on the, on his knees over a, a, wo- a badly wounded and dying gladiator, perhaps trying to help him. And you get closer and you realize he's actually drinking the blood from his mortal wounds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, Good you know, old and so, yeah, dr- drinking and eating parts of, of, of dead warriors is really sure. powerful magic. Uh, eating mummy dust and having it as a oh, spice sure. you put on your stuff. Uh, and yeah, of listen, course, mummy, eating- uh, mummy powder was in the Merck index until 19, until the 19 teens, if you could believe right. it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, uh, so it's, it is, you know, we, we have, a, and also we have references of things, you know, we, we eat, we eat plenty of things that are supposed, that are symbolic of body parts and so on. You know, it's not common, but it's out there here and there. And so, uh, it is, uh, yeah, you know, mummies and, 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 and drinking blood and placenta eating is the most current or maybe not the most yeah. current, but, um, and you mentioned this, uh, uh, one of the more recent, um, Things and placentas are given 
many properties of health and well-being. Uh, a recent paper came out. You're going to just be collecting things you wish you had when you wrote your book, you know, from the rest, for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, a paper came way, out. That's the way it works. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's showing – I put a blog post up about this just the other day. The uh, placenta doesn't actually get – I mean, it is nutritious, I suppose. I mean, it's meat, sure. right? But, well, it's like um, eating a piece of liver. Yeah. And, and uh, but, but it doesn't have these special properties. But if you ask people, should you do it and is it good for you, and you ask doctors – Nurses, midwives, and so on, you find midwives are more likely to say yes. Nurses are likely to say, I don't know or no. They almost never say yes. And doctors all say no. Among people who are babies, what, what in their history makes them more likely to, to eat the placenta? And the one variable they found in this very small study, a limited study, is history of mental health diagnoses. <laughs> well, next. <laughs> That's, right. So, so placenta, that's where placentas are right now in the sort of wellness world. You've got to be crazy well, I mean, your placenta. You know, anybody who knows anything about uh, about uh, hormones uh, knows that they're, they're proteins, and if you cook them, you denature them. And so, uh, you know, the people that I dealt with, all of them admitted, and, that, and this was a surprise, that you're dealing with the placebo effect, which is a very powerful thing. Um, so um <laughs> unless you take unless you take it raw as a smoothie and then you I don't know how many of them. Oh, so you can stop now. <laughs> and, and even then you are going to digest a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so it's uh, I, I think it's a vestige of uh, of a you know medicinal cannibal when, when medicinal cannibalism used to used to be quite common and now this is the sort of last example of it in Western civilization. Thank you for listening to this episode of Iconocast with Bill Schutt. Please share on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, and any sharing sites, social media that you can think of. The link from Iconocast.com and check out Bill's book, Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History at Amazon, through our link at Iconocast.com. Be sure to watch for an upcoming episode in March 2017 as we talk about fire. <laughs>